Good afternoon. Today I'm talking about Arthur Wien, best known as the first to translate into English Erika Maria Remarque's classic German novel about the First World War. We know it as All Quiet on the Western Front. Wien's translation was published in London by Putnam in 1929. First, some context, and then I'll move to what I want to speak about. Wien as a writer and stylist. Australian-born in 1897, Wien served as a signaller in the AIF during the First World War. Today, we'd say he worked in communications. Here he is with the signallers of the 54th Battalion. There's an annotation on the back that says, we're going up to Passchendaele. He's in the middle of the front row. From Egypt and the Western Front, he sent letters, postcards, and many other things home to his large family in Roseville, Sydney. Each letter was tailored to its audience. Even his mother had a nickname, Jubs. Someone else was Pruid. Arthur himself was Skin, yet his father, a Methodist minister, was father. During the war, Wien was awarded the military medal and wounded to an extent from which he never recovered. After returning to Australia in 1919, he continued his education at the University of Sydney and was awarded a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford University. In the late 1920s, he translated Remarque's great war novel. Wien died in 1971 after a life lived in England and a career at the library of, the, of London's Victoria and Albert Museum. As Guy said, I was on the curatorial team of our exhibition, Keepsakes, Australians and the Great War. I jumped at the chance to survey Arthur Wien's papers for Keepsakes. We had long wanted to display the galley proof of all quiet on the Western Front in our new treasures gallery. For one reason or another, this hadn't yet happened. Um, in the last few years, the library has acquired further papers relating to Arthur Wien, many of them dating to the First World War period. Wien's wartime papers were the most varied and ent entertaining, dare I say, of the manuscripts I surveyed for the exhibition. This is the main case in the exhibition, which I'm sure many of you have seen. Among the items we have on display is the lavender he posted to his, his father from London, probably during a period of leave. It's encased in a little handmade envelope with London lavender written in capitals on one side and Dinkum just beneath. It still has lavender within it. I checked. We have a note passed to him by a friend, a fellow soldier who was on a passing ship in the Suez Canal. Wien's friend put the note into a tin, and as Wien explained, one of the soldiers of my battalion who was swimming in the canal and gathering cigarettes, etc., that were thrown over, got it, and knowing me, brought it up. This is his annotation. It's very helpful when people um, write these kinds of annotations on the backs of their objects. There's also a gum leaf inscribed with To Percy from Arthur, Egypt, the 13th of February, 16. He sent it to Egypt. Um, he sent it from Egypt to his little brother Percy. Wien was a talented caricaturist, and there are several sketches in the collection. He also seems to have been an enthusiastic photographer. It's likely that he and his friends swapped photographs. Some have quirky annotations. My favourite is this a shipboard snap of washing on the rails taken when crossing the equator. 
the annotation notes somewhat wryly, on board the Aeneas, just as we were crossing the equator, so washing on the line may have a double meaning. The archive appears at first instance to be about keeping in touch, informing and amusing. He appears to be a clever and funny young man with a close relationship with his family. All this makes for engrossing reading. Arthur Wien's papers include a typescript, typescript pre-publication German copy of Remark's book, which Wien used for his translation, and Wien's own translation at different stages of composition. Evocatively, they show quite plainly how the title emerged from the literal translation, No News in the West, to All Quiet in the West, to All Quiet on the Western Front. We have one of his handwritten drafts on display and first editions of both the German and the English published books. The display highlights the making of a book from handwritten draft to galley proof to book. This display is at the end of our exhibition in a section called A Writer's War. Before I go further, I'd like to acknowledge the work of Christina Spittle, who has written much about Arthur Wien and Wien's relatives, Tanya Crobbers, who has published selections from his correspondence, among other things. I would also like to mention Patrick Robertson, a volunteer in our manuscripts branch, whose enthusiasm for all things Wien has been infectious. I'm also very happy to say that relatives of Arthur Wien are in the audience today. Today, I want to focus on Wien's wartime papers, those created and collected during the First World War. I'm talking about them as someone who has scoured them with a view to developing an exhibition. As I've said, much is what he sent home to his family in Roseville. He appears not to have kept anything himself. Sorry, this is um, the display case, which you've probably all seen of All Quiet on the Western Front. Within the papers is a draft of a letter dated the 27th of June 1930 to Australia House, probably in response to an official request for wartime keepsakes. He says that he has nothing from the First World War and that it must all be with his family. There's also a great bit in one of the wartime letters too. A friend of his called Stan had writer's regret about the continued existence of something he'd written to Wien. Wien replied quite cheerfully to Stan on the 13th of February 1917. Another skimping note to you, thanking you for your various and bonza epistolae. Today at noon we move into the line again after four days spell. I always retain my correspondence until we are in the trenches when I utilise it for lighting the brazier and boiling my tea. <laughs> so have no fear as to the fate of your letters to me. Have you read a poem by Meredith entitled The Chartist? Well, that depicts tea, and he has that in capital letters, as the ambrosial brew of all that is ideal. Be not offended then, but know that your letters are as goodly as Abel's offering on the altar fire. So you can see that even as a young man, Arthur Wien wrote with panache. His wartime letters are full of humour, intelligence and flair. Revisiting them for this talk, I saw that, in addition to wanting to keep in touch and amuse his audience, there's definitely something literary and reflective about many of them. He steps back and creates. For the rest of my time, I want to explore some of these letters. 
I argue that these can be taken as evidence for his initial response to the war, as well as a way of working through, processing and coping with the war. The letters I'm going to talk about fall into roughly two categories, reflective musings and well-crafted comic pieces. First, to musings that aren't really about communication, but are more about creating a mood in writing. There is this, dated Christmas Day, 1915, when he was at sea going to war. He was about 18. Life on a troop ship is a certain kind of life and offers great inducements to those who fear to die. Indeed, care is scrupulously taken that none die on board, for that would necessitate the stoppage of the ship, a thing not to be contemplated for one moment, lest the war be kept waiting. Perhaps the most interesting and persistent feature of a troopship philosophy is a pathetic fatalism, which, despite the match-like spluttering of an occasionally ardent optimism, settles with a comfortable sorrowfulness upon all, just before mess. I never realised before the significance of Keats' peculiar phrase of wooing, easeful death. I think he knew something of the irresistible and inexorable hand of a cruel fate, which through the dark gates of consumption drove him to death. But now I find this fatalism, or shall we say, to be less pagan, or rather more respectable, this stoicism is here so compacted, so lollybox-like, that the spirit of the mess is unanimous in a desperate, eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And this is Xmas 1915. Another example is this, setting a scene for his mother on a Sunday morning. It dates from the 22nd of July 1917. He was somewhere in France. Dear mother, the top of the morning to you from the top of the old windmill. What a harmony of holiness seems to be ascending from these woods and hills and gently dipping valleys this morning. It is a Sabbath past expression, deep, tranquil and serene. The ringing of the church bell in the village suggests the reverent congregation of simple peasants who are even now kneeling as the surplus curé mumbles the sanctus. Then he has about three or four lines of Latin um, from the um, text that they would have read in church in Latin. And then follows a silence which is very eloquent of thanksgivings from humble hearts. Queen was obviously a morning person, as the previous month, on the 4th of June 1917, he had written a letter to his mother in a similar vein. This time, he starts with a quotation from Edward Fitzgerald's translation of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Quotations and literary allusions are not unusual in Wien's letters. He was widely read and knew how to use his knowledge. Now to the letter. Awake, for morning in the bowl of night hath flung the stone that puts the stars to flight. They're the first two lines of the Rubaiyat. Dear Jobs, that you'll remember that's his mother. I think we cannot rival the picturesqueness, the peacefulness and the sweetness of sunrise over the fair fields of France in early summer. This is a morning of contentment and forgetfulness. The heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to have fallen away and the whole earth sings. It's four o'clock and I've been watching the sunrise from the door of my tent. I'm sitting at the far side of a deal board table whereon are quite a number of things, a switchboard, a field telephone, a copy of Shakespeare's dramatic works, some pairs of pliers, 
many dead matches, cigarette butts, message pads, both white and pink, and much candle grease. In this, he starts to leave the poetic for the documentary. <laughs> By this 1918 letter to his mother, he had perfected the scene-setting letter. It's dated the 5th of February, 1918, and the place is from a, a little wood. <laughs> Old Mother Jubbs. Good morning. Since four this morning, I have been sitting in our cookhouse that shelters against the concrete wall of this little bell... Bellbond um, fortress on the outskirts of a ragged wood. Yes, it is a cosy, cheerful little posy. All this time, until just now, which is ten to six, I have been presiding genius at the fire. The SIG office, Signaler's office, is here in the cookhouse. When I came on shift, there were two mournful coals glowing, and for these two hours I have mothered them, tickled them with little twigs, made them beam with merry good humour, crackle with annoyance when I belaboured them with coup de vent. Um, that's wind, I think. <laughs> Until now I have them glowing with a wrathful fire, a surly conscript. In itself, this amateur fire worship is, a good, is good pastime. Many of his letters are direct and straightforward, however, like this one about the, about the realities of writing lots of letters. You get a lot back. <laughs> This one to his mother, written from a barn somewhere in France. On the 5th of July, 1916. At last, our long-delayed mail is arriving again. I received 17 today and yesterday, and it is impossible to answer them all for a fair while. Furthermore, I don't know that letters will get through. We may be allowed to use only service cards. For Ween, writing seemed to require both time and freedom. This from an undated letter. I cannot write much for this censorship militaire is abominable. This letter must serve for them all at home, perhaps for some time, as the possibilities of writing cannot be assured. Being on the move cramped his style, as he explained to his father quite poetically from somewhere in France on the 13th of July, 1916. Dear father, letter writing is reduced to a minimum just now. We have dodged about from barn to stable, from stable to flour mill, from mill, flour mill to barn, and from barn to dugout so persistently of late that a fellow doesn't get sufficiently adjusted for sensible letter writing before he is up and off again. Then there are letters that are vehicles for humour. This to his sibling called Puddin, I'm not quite sure which one they, here they were, um, from the 9th of um, November 1917. I take up my pen, but know not how to proceed, and but for George Pratt, that's one of his friends, insisting that I write to you, frankly, I should not. But George supplies conscience for two, and this epistle is the outcome of moral coercion. There is this postcard from Paris of the Hotel de Ville. On the back, he writes, it is quite evident whence Sydney gets her Hotel de Ville style of architecture. It is a pity Sydney isn't content with the one style in the one building. I receive your lengthy epistles almost daily. Ween, his nickname for his elder brother, also on active service, has arrived at Salisbury and enjoyed four days leaves. leave, he tells me. Ho. <laughs> and then he's got a Latin phrase, Juvenis um, Felicissime, which is um, like a very happy young man. Myself, I am very well and enjoying shells, shrapnel, and sleep. 
that's it on the back. Wynne was a writer of great range. He could be up, he could be down, he could be clever and dazzle a reader with his turns of phrase and breadth of knowledge. He could be incredibly funny and be sarcastic, wise beyond his years and reflective. He could also be direct and, and convey great pathos in his brevity. I'd like to finish with this from a letter written to his family somewhere in France on the 30th of October, 1916. If I manage to live through the next four days, which are to be very dangerous, I shall write you a few more interesting letters than is this one. But at present, everything is against writing. Have no thought for me. I'm in perfect health and usual good luck. Thank you. <laughs>